The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 11, The Progressives, Part 1. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Okay, so welcome back to the show. Our show is free and independent as always, and we intend to keep it that way. However, if I may be so bold, I need your help to keep it that way. Um, if you are enjoying the content, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. That's an easy way you can help us out. Doing so helps other people that are interested in American history find the show, and that's always a good thing. Recently, listener G.V. Davis was kind enough to give us a five-star review on iTunes, so thank you very much, and I'm so happy you're enjoying the show. A second way that you can help involves Amazon. If, like me, you shop on Amazon, please enter the site using the links on our website. That will cause Amazon to send us a few pennies, which helps to keep the lights on. And I do really appreciate your help, and I thank you so very much for listening to the show. And finally, if you would like to support us and get something back, then please join our Patreon site. For only $5 a month, or about the price of one fancy Starbucks drink, you'll get access to all of the Patreon-only series, uh, transcripts of each and every episode, and access to the Patreon series 1983, the year the world almost ended. You can sign up for Patreon via the website. Just go to the bottom there and you'll see the link. Speaking of the website, if you head over to www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com, you can sign up for our mailing list can also find resources that were used to create the episodes this season. If you have questions or comments or concerns, please email me at sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can also find me on Twitter if you're into the social media thing. The handle is at AmericanHisCast. All right, so this week our song of the week is called Sweet Cider Time. It was first published in 1916. Enjoy, and we'll catch you on the other side. All right, so let's get started. Some historians periodize the progressive era as lasting from the 1890s to the 1920s. However, in my mind, it lasts through World War II at least. And obviously, it didn't just start on January 1st, 1891. It's not like people woke up on that day and exclaimed, thank God we're now in the progressive era. I hated that previous one. It doesn't work that way. But for our purposes and for the ease of understanding, we'll say that the progressive era starts in the 1890s and it lasts through the presidency of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Now, rather than simply jump into the progressive era itself, let's start with a brief review 
of some of what we've covered in the previous episodes. In the 1870s, you got the rise of the Greenback Labor Party, a political group dedicated to thwarting the power of the so-called robber barons. They also supported uh, organized labor, and they argued for the implementation of inflationary monetary measures. Primarily, this party was supported by farmers. Now, you might wonder why anyone would support inflationary economic policies. Simply put, inflation benefits debtors. For example, you borrow $1,000 today, and you use it to pay your college tuition. Yes, I know, it's going to cost way more than that, but this is just an example. You take four years to get through college. Let's say you get a deferment. You don't start paying your loan back for another four years. So now it's been eight years. Assuming inflationary measures are in place and the average rate of inflation is 4%, that means that by the time you start paying back the $1,000 loan, the value of the currency has dropped 32%. You are essentially paying it back with cheaper money or money that has less value. Another way of putting it is to say that you borrowed gold only to pay it back using copper. Thus, inflation is supported by debtors, and in the 19th century, farmers were often debtors, as they had to borrow quite often in order to make it through the various seasons. Now, the problem with inflation is that it penalizes, and thus discourages savers. If the inflation rate is 4% and your rate of return for saving money is, say, 3%, then you're losing money by saving. If you look at the United States today, the average American has about $1,500 in savings, and very few people actually save money in a savings account. Why? Because the rate of return is minuscule. You are not being encouraged to save in this kind of an environment. The rate of inflation in the United States right now is about 2%, or at least if you believe the government figures. But if you're only going to get half a percentage point back, you're losing money. There's no reason to save. Now, this Greenback Labor Party was part of a larger movement in American history known as populism. Populism rose up in the late 19th century in the United States and was based, since it was often made up of farmers, in the Great Plains region. This aspect was sometimes called prairie populism, but it did also include alliances with urban workers. Populism, however, failed as a cause, but it did have political influence well into the 20th century. Some of the ideas that carried forward through populism were, number one, railroad legislation, number two, the income tax, number three, inflation of the currency, number four, the direct election of senators, Number five, the initiative, referendum, and recall movement, which we will discuss in detail um, in a moment. And number six, the sub-treasury plan. Like I said a moment ago, the movement was geared and based on rural life, but many of its ideas appealed um, to the urban progressives who sought to regulate trusts, to reduce the influence of the political machines, and to remedy social injustice. Okay, so in the late 19th century, you had a movement within the Republican Party of reform-minded individuals, sometimes you'll see them referred to as mugwumps, who wanted to see the country return to the days before you had the monopolies. Kind of this idea of the good old days. Some men of wealth and standing lamented the changes in the political and social climate, changes they blamed on the rise of the industrialists. Essentially, they decried the rise of monopoly, oligarchy, and plutocracy. Now, according to these folks... The Protestant Victorian ideals of hard work and morality that had led to, the su to success were threatened by the nouveau riche, the super wealthy who seemed to thrive on what some people referred to as conspicuous consumption. I guess you could say um, that they hated what was the equivalent of the Kardashians of the 19th century. And if the Kardashians are listening, I don't. that's not my personal opinion. Um, 
But the earlier mugwump leaders by the early 1880s found themselves being eclipsed by political machines catering to big business and immigrants, something which I mentioned in the last episode. And the fallout from all of this was that in 1884, the mugwumps were Republican reformers who bolted from the party to support Democrat Grover Cleveland in the 1884 election. Now, a second step on the rise of the progressives was the fact that the emerging middle class sympathized with mugwump views and wanted a return to equality of opportunity and moral reform. Now, some historians have referred to this as the Third Great Awakening. It consisted of political reformers, intellectuals, women, journalists, social gospelites, and professionals. Many of these people felt underrepresented, while industrialists and immigrants were protected by bribery, labor unions, or political machines. So there was a great deal of resentment on the side of the people who thought they were underrepresented. Thus, we get the progressives. They believed that an efficient government could protect the public interest and restore order to society. In their eyes, government was an agency of human welfare. And this stands in stark contrast to, say, the founding fathers of the United States, who saw government as a necessary evil, but one which must be kept small and non-intrusive. It is also in contrast to the 20th century scholars, such as Murray and Rothbard, who argued that, in the end, government, or the state, is power and violence. And the progressives had 12 specific issues with which they were concerned. First, excessive power of trusts. Number two was political machines. Three, the threat of socialism. Four, squalid conditions in the cities. Five, working conditions for female labor and child labor. Number six, consumer protection. Number seven, voting reform. Eight, conservation. Nine, banking reform. Ten, a labor reform. 11, prohibition of alcohol, and 12, female suffrage. Thus, in the end, the progressives embarked upon a reform movement the size and scope of which had not been seen in the United States since the Second Great Awakening. Now, while all of this sounds great, there was a darker side to the progressive movement. Many of them were strongly nativist. Some of them even embraced eugenics, the belief that certain races were superior to others and that inferior peoples should be prevented from breeding. Secondly, many embraced the notion of racial segregation as part of the natural order to society. Now, I should note that, perhaps contrary to what many Americans think, this idea was not to be found only in the southern areas of the United States. Third, some white Anglo-Saxon Protestants or WASPs sought to enforce moral views on other groups in society through assimilation and moral reform. Okay, so let us now look deeper into these issues of reform. First, we will concern ourselves with trusts, political machines, and the living conditions in the cities. As we've mentioned before, trusts were seen as dominating the economy and political power as well. The progressives believed competition was being eliminated by an oligarchy and small businessmen were no longer able to compete. Further, in politics, they believed the country was a plutocracy. This is where large numbers of politicians are dominated by trusts in municipal, state, and federal government. So they, the progressives, wanted to reform this. Now I wonder if the state is capable of being reformed myself. If one accepts the definition of the state provided by Rothbard, then I would say it's not. Here's what Rothbard says the state is. Quote, the state is that organization, society, which attempts to maintain a monopoly on the use of force and violence in a given territorial area. In particular, it is the only organization in society that obtains its revenue not by voluntary contribution or payment, for services rendered, but by coercion, end quote. This is found in um, Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbard on page 13. If he's correct, and I believe he is, then this organization is not able to be reformed. 
Now, the second issue they wanted to deal with was political machines. As you remember, political bosses controlled districts or cities, and they regularly accepted bribes from special interests in return for favors. Who paid the bill? Taxpayers, of course. The machine often enticed immigrants for their votes. So, while immigrants were seen as being represented by the machine, wasps were not, or believed their interests were not represented. Thus, progressives argued, municipal politics were out of the hands of civic-minded Americans. Now, the third issue was the challenge presented by the enormous growth of cities at this point. Between 1880 and 1920, about 27 million immigrants entered the United States, most of whom came from Eastern and Southern Europe. About one-third of those people returned home, while two-thirds stayed. You also had many rural Americans moving to the city looking for work as increased job opportunities created by the Industrial Revolution became available. And there were four major results from all of this. First, if you remember from our episodes on urbanization, living conditions in the cities were less than ideal. So-called dumbbell tenements, although they did provide low-cost and affordable housing for many of the poor, were often unhealthy and overcrowded. Secondly, cities had infrastructure that was ill-equipped to deal with the exploding population. Third, crime was seen as a problem. Violence, gambling, and prostitution were rampant. But I should mention, in many, if not all, cities... Things like gambling and prostitution, they were not illegal. Finally, working conditions, well, they were appalling. Women and children, so the progressives argued, were being exploited. It is estimated that about half a million were wounded and about 30,000 were killed in industrial accidents every year during the early portion of the 20th century. The American Federation of Labor, or the AFL, actually discouraged labor legislation, except child labor, as previous pro-labor laws had been used against labor. It preferred that government would stay out of labor issues so that unions could bargain effectively without government intervention. They understood that the money, and thus the loyalty of politicians, lay with the businesses. Now, before we go too much further, I want to talk about some of the progressive analysts and advocates. Now, one of the things that came out of all this is many colleges began creating separate social science departments. We had things like a Department of Economics, Political Science, and Sociology. All of these things came into existence around this time. Social scientists sought to analyze human society with the same objectivity that natural scientists used in studying nature. This rise in social science reflected the fact that there was a growing belief in the ability of people to analyze society and solve human problems. They rejected the notion that society was all about survival of the fittest. Many professors and their students ended up becoming progressives, and they had students. Between 1870 and 1920, college enrollment increased by 400%. Again, this is an indication of the fact that society was becoming wealthier as it became more productive. Probably one of the most famous progressive advocates was John Dewey. He talked about learning by doing rather than just studying the classics. He was a big believer in the fact or the idea that education for living and working played a crucial role in democracy. In his opinion, education for life should be the primary goal of teachers, and the goal of education was to create socially useful adults. Now, another important person was Lester Frank Ward. He challenged the idea of the survival of the fittest. He argued it was natural for people to control and change their social environment through laws, customs, and relationships for their own benefit. He believed it was government's role to shape the destiny of society. Thus, he felt there should be legislation to address inadequate housing. Now, some other notable social scientists were Richard Eli, 
Charles Beard, and Woodrow Wilson. Eli was a professor at the University of Wisconsin. He was an economist and a social gospelite who had a profound impact on Governor Robert La Follette in Wisconsin. Beard was interested in applying history to reform corrupt city governments. And Wilson, of course, would become president later on, uh, but at this point he was a political scientist. Now, besides academics, you also had social critics and writers join the movement. Henry de Marest Lloyd, the author of Wealth Against Commonwealth, uh, published in 1894, criticized Standard Oil and its monopolistic practices. And some see this as the start of investigative journalism. Another one was Thorstein Veblen, author of The Theory of the Leisure Class, 1899. He criticized the nouveau riche for the way they flaunted their wealth. Now, another one was Jacob A. Reese, author of How the Other Half Lives, 1890. He was a photojournalist who exposed the dirt, the disease, vice, and misery of the rat-infested slums of New York City. He was a major influence on progressives such as Theodore Roosevelt. Now, it wasn't just these authors, though, that criticized society for its perceived injustices. You had socialists who did as well. Many of them were European immigrants who hated what they saw as the excesses of capitalism. But, oddly enough, many progressives, such as Woodrow Wilson, saw socialists and socialism as the biggest threat to the United States. And one more thing before we move on. Don't forget the social gospel movement, which we spoke about last time. They emphasized the role of Christianity in helping to reform urban society. The leading preachers of this movement were Josiah Strong, Walter Rauschenbusch, and Washington Gladden. It influenced reforms such as the Settlement House Movement and the Salvation Army. Okay, so that brings us to the muckrakers. These were journalists who attempted to expose the evils of society. Popular magazines such as McClure's, Cosmopolitan, which is owned by Hearst, as well as Collier's and Everybody's, emerged and became very popular. However, it should be mentioned that many of the muckraking journals, fearing legal reprisals, didn't just publish sensationalized stories. Um, they did expend money and time to verify the material that they were printing. One example was the $3,000 spent which was a large sum in those days, to verify Ida Tarbell's article on John D. Rockefeller. Just to give you an idea, that's well over $100,000 today. So, having said that, let's look at some of these muckrakers and their writings. I just mentioned Ida Tarbell. She published a devastating expose on the Standard Oil Company in McClure's. Um, in this article, Tarbell detailed Rockefeller's ruthless tactics to crush competition one of which was the business of Ida Tarbell's father. Now, in the end, Standard Oil Trust was broken up in 1911 for being a, quote, bad trust. Now, a second work was the famous book by Upton Sinclair, The Jungle. This book contained graphic depictions of unsanitary conditions and meatpacking plants and sparked a reaction to the meat industry that led to the eventual regulation of that industry under the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt. It was what inspired the Meat Inspection Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act. Now, third, you had David G. Phillips' The Treason of the State, which appeared in Cosmopolitan magazine in 1906. In this article, Phillips charged that 75 of 90 U.S. senators were, in effect, agents of the trusts and the railroads. He helped gain public support for the passage of the 17th Amendment for the direct election of senators. Furthermore, his articles provoked President Roosevelt to label this genre of journalism muckraking. However, this was the high watermark for this sort of article as, going forward, more and more editors became fearful of a backlash and thus published fewer muckraking pieces. Now, having said that, there were two more writers that I'd like to mention. 
First was John Spargo. He exposed the abuses of child labor and advocated government-sponsored feeding programs for children. For whatever it's worth, Spargo was a member of the American Socialist Party. And finally, you had Ray Stannard Baker, author of Following the Color Line, published in 1908. He attacked the discrimination and the subjugation of America's 9 million African Americans and their literacy due to a lack of opportunity. So, all of these authors worked to expose and detail various problems in society, whether it was racial segregation or the problems of the meatpacking industry. Now, in our next episode, we'll continue to discuss the progressives and we'll pick up with progressive activists and their activities. Until next time, have a great day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.